Well, welcome to episode 26 of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark Abel. I'm a family physician, professor at UGA, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. Essential Evidence is an evidence-based online primary care-oriented reference. Please check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. That way you can get all the poems, about 25 per month, sent to you, as well as access to a powerful point-of-care evidence-based online reference. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast does not represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. So uh, Dr. Henry Berry, family physician and one of the founders of Poems, and Dr. John Hickner, editor of the Journal of Family Practice, join me again today. John, how are you doing? Doing well, doing well. The weather is finally tuning down to fall for sure, and boats have to come out of the water. Uh, So getting ready for winter sports. Yeah, so the ice uh, has, has the bay frozen over yet? We're, t- we're talking on <laughs> September sixth. So Let's not push it too ice, much. <laughs> the ice flows, you know, edging up on shore. All right, and, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Henry, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, but I'm more concerned about you. You you ducked out just before, uh, right after we treat uh, re- recorded our last episode, uh, just before Labor Day, and that was right when Dorian was raising its ugly head. And now that you're back in Georgia, how are things there? Despite our forecaster in chief's uh, uh, threats, that uh, Georgia <laughs> inland of the coast remained pretty untouched. We've just had ple- very pleasant weather. It's about ninety-five degrees and sunny here, um, but we're all excited. We're in our red and black, and it's the home opener for University of Georgia tomorrow. So everyone's in a good mood in Athens, especially since we're playing Murray State, and it should be one of those drubbings that pays them a lot of money and gets us a, a W. I so, think Dorian um, just skipped over Georgia, though, and went straight to Alabama, Mark. <laughs> exactly. I love. I need to get my Sharpie out and, and adjust that forecast. Uh, but yeah, so it's, it's South Carolina. We shouldn't make light of it. South yes, Carolina I'm, is I'm taking yeah. uh, a hit as we speak, and they are having you significant it. storm surges. And, and I think there's concerns for North Carolina as well. So uh, our thoughts to those folks, and, and it's a lot to go through. And there was a lot of disruption for a lot of people along the coast from this hurricane over the past week. So hopefully everybody's uh, resettling if they can and um, safe uh, for now if they can't. Uh, This is the first poem, and it is uh, by a a couple of my graduate students, actually, so don't hold that against me. Um, It's one of my favorite studies we've done in the past few years, and it's called, the title of the poem is Clinical Gestalt Compares Well with Decision Rules in Diagnosing Acute Respiratory Infections. And Ariella Dale and Christian Marcello were the two um, uh, graduate students who are now PhDs out in the world, and I was their supervisor. This was in the British Journal of General Practice, 2019, volume 69. Question that we asked was, is clinician gestalt, or the overall clinical impression, as accurate as clinical decision rules in diagnosing acute respiratory illness? So we searched PubMed uh, thoroughly. We searched Google as well, which we're increasingly doing in meta-analyses, but we limited that to the first um, 50 or so hits that we found. Uh, we tried to find prospective studies, so studies that prospectively gathered data, not a chart review, and that compared the accuracy of the overall clinical impression with clinical decision rules in the diagnosis of various respiratory infections. We didn't see direct comparisons, but we, we made indirect comparisons based on how other studies have said that those rules normally work. Conditions we looked at were sinusitis, 
pharyngitis, strep pharyngitis, and community-acquired pneumonia. We also looked at the bibliographies of the included studies, as well as some previously published systematic reviews. Uh, we limited ourselves to studies that were in the ambulatory setting, primary care, urgent care, and ED. Ultimately, we found 16 studies with just over 6,600 patients, 11 studied adults only, four studied kids only, and one studied both. Nine studies looked at pneumonia, three studies looked at strep pharyngitis, and four looked at rhinosinusitis. The bulk of the data was for suspected community-acquired pneumonia. Most of the studies were at low risk of bias, which is good. Only three were at high risk of bias. Overall, clinicians performed quite well, and these were mostly studying uh, established uh, clinicians, not students or other learners. Uh, for community-acquired pneumonia in adults, the clinicians were really quite good at ruling in and ruling out pneumonia. The positive likelihood ratio was 7.7. The negative likelihood ratio was 0.54. So they were better at ruling in than ruling out. Less reliable in kids, uh, positive likelihood ratio 2.7. Negative was 0.63. They weren't that good, uh, at, or th they also weren't as good at rhinosinusitis or bacterial sinusitis, likelihood ratio 3 to 4 for the positive and 0.3 for the negative. And they did worst of all for strep pharyngitis, positive likelihood ratio of 2.1, negative 0.47. In general, they were a little better at ruling in than they were at ruling out, especially for pneumonia. So the clinical decision rules, when we looked at those and how accurate they were, they were generally, they, they weren't better than the overall clinical impression. And in some cases, they were actually worse, except for their ability to rule out strep. So bottom line in this systematic review, which the author of the poem, Dr. Berry, calls limited for some reason, I don't know why, uh, clinicians were at least as accurate as clinical decision rules in diagnosing and ruling I out I would also comment practices. that I really Henry, think this 30% figure is highly sure. misleading. So first of all, it is a limited The way I see this review. is that Single the database in the first 50 hits of Google. Surely you could have included a librarian or so a librarian of relative grad student risk to help it do I think a proper just so misleading. Um, so it's possible that you may have missed a few important studies, probably not many. Um, having said that, this is parallel to some other comparisons, and please don't hold me to, but I think Ioannidis may have done a similar assessment looking at other ER-based clinical decision rules and found that clinicians generally did at least as well. So the other issue here is that uh, the authors oversimplified the outcomes uh, in terms of the clinician ratings because you had to put everything into a common coding scheme. And so you basically used a dichotomous result. Yep, they got it or nope, no way they have it. So to me, I, I would be more concerned about the clinicians who are in that gray area. And that may be where the clinical decision rules are most useful. I prefer to call it simplifying, not oversimplifying, <laughs> frankly. But so we, we had to do that. At least we didn't have, we, it, we did that in order to be able to combine results across studies because mo most studies did a dichotomous yes or no, but there were a handful that did give us a percentage estimate or something like that, or give us one of four categories. And so we did collapse those because they were different and there was no way to include those without doing some collapsing. So, and we chose to collapse the categories in such a way that optimized their diagnostic odds ratio. So it made them look as, you know, we, we gave them the benefit of the doubt, essentially. 
But um, I will totally own that. I'm sure there are some other studies out there we missed. It's very hard, we found, to search for overall clinical impression because it's often buried in a table. It's not necessarily discussed in the abstract or the title, and it's often not the main topic of the study. And so if it's not in the abstract or the title or the indexing terms, we're not going to find it. And so we, that's why we included the clinic, the Google searching. Uh, and I don't know about you, Henry, I've never found anything useful beyond the third page of a Google search. So that's why we kind of stopped there. But um, yeah, and I think, I think the, the real take home for me was it made me rethink, you know, I've been a big advocate for clinical decision rules. And I think um, it, it makes me think more that they are, important as a support to our decision-making, as a check on our decision-making, but not a substitute. And I've always felt that way, but that really reinforced it. And I think also they are useful for learners because these were experienced clinicians. For less experienced clinicians, they can point the way toward what the learner should be paying attention to and, you know, how are they and and what should they be learning. And, um, you know, until they get to those thousand patients that they've seen with a cough to the point where they're very comfortable figuring out um, who's more likely to have pneumonia. So yeah, we had fun doing the study and I hope that it, it, it did provide some, some food for thought, I thought. John, any, any final comments? I think the results are not surprising. They passed the, the sniff test. By that, I mean, I think we are pretty good at diagnosing pneumonia when it's there. And we have difficulty with sinusitis. I think we know that. And most of us do tend to rely on a strep test if we're concerned about ruling in or out strep throat. So I think this is, this is consistent, I would say, with the way that most physicians practice. Yeah, we're, we're doing a, um, we're currently just submitted a systematic review for publication on biomarkers for the diagnosis of outpatient community-acquired pneumonia. So things like CRP and procalcitonin, are those valuable? And then we're working on one now for signs and symptoms uh, that's sort of a, uh, probably ready to submit in about a month. So this is an area that we're, you know, continuing to, to dig into. So the quiz, this was my turn. And so, you know, I'm a screening junkie. And so I I have a screening question. So how much does screening mammography reduce the likelihood that a woman dies of breast cancer during a uh, normal life expectancy of 80 years? 10%, 30%, 50%, or 70%? Stay tuned. Yeah. Sorry, Henry, got there before me. <laughs> Smells like a trick question to me. We'll see yeah. what the results are. Okay. So, uh, John, I think it's your turn. Yes. The title of my poem is In Patients with Type 2 Diabetes and Nephropathy, Can Agliflozin Reduces Likelihood of End Stage Renal Disease and Adverse Cardiovascular Outcomes? So, there you have it. The results are in the title. Uh, I chose this one because this is one of a series of anti-diabetic medications that are starting to show at least some improvement in renal and cardiovascular outcomes. I say some advisedly, and I'm sure we'll have some discussion of this. Uh, This appeared in New England Journal of Medicine in 2019, volume 380, starting on page 2295. So this is a synopsis of the study. In patients who had type 2 diabetes and a GFR of 30 to 89, that's 30 to 89. So this is a pretty broad swath of patients from pretty bad renal function to pretty good renal functions. I wanted to point that out. They were randomized to receive the SGLT2 inhibitor canagliflozin, 100 milligrams orally once a daily or placebo. 
They randomized over 4,000 patients, average age of 63, about a third were women. The trial was actually stopped after an interim analysis with a medium follow-up of 2.6 years because of the positive results. The authors reported a composite outcome of end-stage renal disease, renal or cardiovascular death, or doubling of serum creatinine. And as usual, this doesn't make much sense. A doubling of serum creatinine is so different in seriousness that it's important to focus on the individual outcome. So that's what we'll do. The risk of end-stage renal disease, that is a GFR less than 15 or initiating dialysis, was reduced 20.4 versus 29.4 events per thousand person years. Now that translates to a number needed to treat of 111, which is not impressive, but it's real. There was no difference, however, in renal deaths, which were quite rare. There was a small borderline statistically significant reduction in cardiovascular events with a number needed to treat of 185 per year. There was a reduction in the composite of major adverse cardiovascular outcomes as well with a number needed to treat of about 100 which is consistent with the results of other studies of canagliflozin in high-risk type 2 diabetes patients. Safety didn't appear to be an issue. There was no increase in serious events. So what we see is an SGLT2 uh, inhibitor, uh, like others, such as empagliflozin, does have some effect on renal and cardiovascular outcomes in a positive way. These studies have all been done in patients who are at pretty high risk And I think we've expressed concern in the past that many physicians will generalize these results and say, hey, these are are good drugs for all patients with diabetes. That's never been studied. We don't know that. So um, I have a little skepticism. I I think Henry has some thoughts too. But, you know, one issue is the cost. And and this drug is just looking on GoodRx and cheapest is $490. This is Invokana, by the way. We always use generic names, but Invokana, a lot of you've heard of, uh, $500 a month. Uh, so if you take $500 a month times 12 months, let's say somebody somebody has to pay that. Now, we realize there are discounts and things like that that can happen. That's $6,000 a year. For 2.6 years, that's $15,600 times the number needed to treat of 100 per cardiovascular Ouch. event is like a million and a half dollars. So that's a lot to prevent one event. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, a, certainly a cost effect in this issue. And the other point I'll make is that, you know, as you said, it's very, uh, they will do their best to make this seem like it's something for all patients or applies to all patients or you get the same benefit for all patients. But no, this is a, a very specific, very high risk group. Lower risk patients will experience any harms at the same rate, most likely, but they will have fewer benefits. And so the balance of benefits and harms may be different. Um, Henry, any, any yeah, thoughts? I give this? very I'm little gonna... credence <laughs> to this study. See what we just did there? This was the credence trial to our listeners. So I give very little credence to studies that use euphemisms like end-stage kidney disease when most of our patients want to know and assume that the euphemism means that this is the likelihood of their needing dialysis. I went back to the original study, and in this case, end-stage kidney disease was a composite outcome that included dialysis, transplantation, or a sustained glomerular filtration rate of less than 15 per minute. 
So at least two of the three patients might find important. So in that original study, um, it turns out that the rate was slightly lower in the treated group, but that barely missed statistical significance. The upper limit of uh, the confidence interval uh, for the hazard ratio is one. So if you give them the benefit of the doubt and say that it really was uh, not a chance finding, that would translate to an annual number needed to treat of 228. So most of the effect of uh, was really on preserving glomerular filtration rate, which might be important if it's somehow translated to symptoms, quality of life, and the like. So Henry, I think it's time for your poem. Uh, why don't you tell us a little more about Yeah, so this was a meta-analysis by Chu and colleagues published in Lancet uh, just a few weeks ago, and it asks the question, does oral desensitization in children with peanut allergy result in fewer allergic or anaphylactic reactions compared with placebo or peanut avoidance? So these authors searched a whole bunch of registries and databases, including some that I have never encountered in all of my years. And they tried to identify randomized trials of oral immunotherapy administered to children with peanut allergy. They ultimately included 12 studies that had a total of 1,000 participants. Uh, you know, all but one of the studies had fewer than 100, so lots of small studies. The median age ranged from five years to 15 years of age. Eight of them compared oral immunotherapy with placebo, three just looked at avoidance, and one used sublingual immunotherapy. The studies were generally of good quality. Although oral immunotherapy was effective in desensitization, it took higher doses of peanut ingestion to trigger symptoms in the office. In all the other outcomes of interest, anaphylaxis, epinephrine use, etc., it turns out that the rate of events was significantly higher, very counterintuitive uh, for the children who received oral immunotherapy than for the control. So this was a well-done meta-analysis of high-quality studies, and ultimately what it suggests to me is that the in-clinic food challenge really has no correlation with real-world results, and contrary to what we would have expected, oral immunotherapy actually increases the rates of anaphylaxis. So I don't know if this is a dosing phenomenon, if the desensitization only provides brief protection, or if parents and children feel like, okay, I'm doing okay, so... I can now eat a whole bag full of peanuts instead of the 15 grams that they typically use. Yeah, I'm, you know, when I saw that, it does seem counter to some of the individual trials that I've seen. And um, so I think, you know, it, it does, you know, raise the, the original sin of this, which is that parents stopped giving their young kids peanuts and, and nuts you know, nuts early on because of a concern of them experiencing an allergy when actually what that was doing was probably causing uh, a lot of the kids to have these allergies. And so it's kind of an unintended consequence. So the, the rate of anaphylaxis uh, being higher is concerning. I wonder if that's just during the desensitization period and maybe it's better in a longer term study. So I guess one question would be, would you see the same thing with, with longer term studies? So we lost John for a while, but I think he's back. Um, did you have a cold storm up there? An ice storm, maybe? An ice storm took some wires out? <laughs> some snap ice storm in September. Um, so anyway, uh, we were just talking about uh, peanut allergies, and, and I think we're going to move on to the quiz answer. 
Um, and so mem- the quiz answer, so the, the question was, um, how much does screening mammography reduce the likelihood that a woman dies of breast cancer if she lives a normal lifespan? Uh, and the options were 10%, 30%, 50%, and 70%. So mammography is recommended by the USPSTF every other year for all women age 50 to 75 years. Women can choose to begin biennial mammography at age 40 based on an assessment of risk and share decision-making around potential harms and benefits. Women who have a first-degree relative with breast cancer are encouraged to begin at age 40, as well as women who may be at high risk for other reasons. Uh, the biennial mammography you know, is different from what the American College of Radiology puts at the bottom of every mammography report, much to my chagrin. But if you look at every other country in the world, and I'm talking every other country that has spends money like we do or tries to spend as much money as they can on healthcare, top 25 spenders, every other one is every two years. So uh, the American College of Radiology is actually the only group in the world other than the American Cancer Society, 45 to 54 years that recommends annual mammography. So in any case, uh, that's what the recommendations are. Uh, While surveys show that many women attribute a large decrease in the likelihood of dying of breast cancer to mammography, seeing it as almost entirely protective, in reality, the reduction is about 30%. So put another way, if a woman doesn't screen during her lifetime, her risk of dying of breast cancer if she lives to 80 years of age is about 3%. Regular screening mammography during age 50 to 75 reduces that risk from 3% to about 2.2% a number needed at screen of about 125 over lifetime. Beginning at age 40 reduces the risk from 2.2% to 2.1% for an average risk woman. So only a very small marginal benefit, about one in a thousand. Henry, I think Henry had a couple of yeah, things to so say about this. This reflection about the 30% reduction in mortality uh, reminded me that about 20 years ago, the Department of Family Medicine at Michigan State University had a grant to implement a multiphasic approach to improving breast cancer care among women getting their care from eight of our affiliated residency programs. Uh, the intervention included education about screening, how to manage women who had specific breast complaints. We taught residents and faculty and clinicians in the community how to perform fine needle aspiration. Uh, We developed office systems to provide reminders, improve tracking. We had a system for improving feedback to performance. Lots of neat stuff. But anyway, in the um, materials, the educational materials at that time, the reduction in mortality attributed to screening was also only 30%. So it really hasn't changed in about 20 years. And that's in spite of mammographic techniques they've changed. We're using more uh, computer-aided tools to improve radiologist performance. We've developed programs to try to increase screening. So why hasn't mortality improved? Well, one possibility answer is that mammography doesn't detect the aggressive cancers that are the ones that are most likely to cause death. And then I was taught as a resident, and maybe you guys were too, that breast cancer is a systemic disease and not necessarily a structural disease. And so using a screening modality that looks for a structural change may in fact be inadequate and that what we need are more systemic approaches to screening. You want that?
Yeah, I think um, the the way to, that I generally talk about it with patients is, you know, if you picture 120 women who choose to get screened, screening is going to prevent one of them from dying of breast cancer over their lifetime. And so that that's kind of a, a way people can picture a room with 120 people um, in it. I think, you know, there there is a lot of research on various biomarkers and, you know, liquid biopsies they, they, is the sort of sexy name they give to it to look for different cancers. I'm not aware of, there certainly isn't one on the market for um, breast cancer yet, but I'm sure there's research going on. I know there is one that's, I think it's what, septin 9A or something like that for colorectal cancer, which is not a very good test, but it is marketed and FDA approved for colorectal cancer screening. Uh, it's not recommended by guideline groups. Uh, and um, so, you know, th- that is a, a good point. And Henry, your point about the more aggressive cancers are more likely to have spread even before they are detected. That's why we don't do uh, or recommend melanoma screening because that grows so quickly and spreads early. That may be why ovarian cancer screening has not panned out because uh, the scientists think that those ovarian cancers often metastasize quite early uh, in the in the course of their growth. And um, yeah, so th- it's called length time bias. The, the screening is more likely to detect slower growing cancers on average. So the screen detected cancers, part of the p- apparent benefit is simply that we're, we're, we're enriching the sample of cancers detected by screening with the more indolent ones compared to the overall uh, set of all cancers. So that's called length time bias, a little different from lead time bias, which our listeners are probably more familiar with. So um, great discussion, uh, a lot to talk about this time. Uh, guys, thanks. I hope uh, everyone listening enjoyed the discussion. Uh, as always, the, the plug, please tell your friends, rate us on iTunes and um, you know, spread the word, you know, shoot an email to your fellow residents or fellow uh, practitioners in your clinic and let them know about primary care updates. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.